Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin for the first time in not too long, but certainly longer than we'd like to think. Always a pleasure to have you. Yeah, good to be back. And note that we are here and have returned to answer your Bible questions, so if you'd like to participate in that venture, feel free to send them to us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Note the questions is plural, F-O-R, hope, at gmail.com. If you're listening on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates, that will be accessible to you as well. However, if you'd like to clarify proper spelling, or maybe join us on social media. Our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope, and our uh, Facebook page is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. However, it would be encouraged for all of you to join us on our website. They can't censor us on our own platform, which is calvarychristianfellowship.com, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. As we make the habit in the introduction of explaining, if you click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen, you'll be sent to where you can leave your comments on the right-hand side of the screen, as well as to listen to previous broadcasts and have a countdown clock to know where the broadcast will fit in your respective time zone. And note as well, if you want to listen to us again at later dates, all of the social media platforms and our website will be good for that. But if you choose to make use of it, understand its purpose is to receive your sincere Bible questions. So if you are sincere, that means you want to hear the answer to the question that you're asking. The substance of the question and its answer are both within the Bible, as the topic we're setting aside here today, and of course that it's asked in the form of a question. We'll also be starting the broadcast to allow for time in addressing a uh, apologetics issue to give you all a reason for the hope that is within you. But before we do that, we want to make sure that God speaks more than we do. So Peter, one start us off in a word of prayer, and we can get into the topic of sola fide. Sure. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for the grace and the kindness that you show us, that we are saved by faith alone. What a beautiful promise that is, for we know that we can never earn that salvation in our own power or strength. I pray that right now we'd be able to focus in on your word and your truth, allow it to illuminate us and to help us in our lives, and help us to have a better understanding of who you are, that we might uh, present you in a better, more coherent way to those around us, and hopefully that those listening would be blessed by this. And in your name, amen. That is true. So for those of you who have been following along on our Tuesday morning evening or afternoon engagements, we are going through the fundamental battle cries, if you will, of the Protestant Reformation and asking the question if they're in line with Scripture, which is what they were, of course, intending to do. Uh, We talked about sola scriptura and the reason why we found our belief on the Bible as its first and final authority and why uh, anything that would exalt itself above from or apart from it is... uh, basically putting themselves in a position no one would want to. But then building on that point, when we're talking about what Scripture says, obviously the first and most important question on 
hopefully every Christian's mind, is how do I know that I'm saved? And while sola gratia will certainly tie into this and sola deo gloria will also explain the motive for this, we always tie it back to, when asked this question or considering it for ourselves, the key passage in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 9 through 10, where it notes, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Obviously, that lays things out in a fairly straightforward manner, but cult groups still try to get around this. So we're going to take the time, first of all, to start with the basics, the dictionary, but also make sure that we clarify to those of you who are listening, whether you're a part of these groups or a part of uh, Orthodox Christianity, we need to understand what we believe as opposed to those who would exalt themselves or set themselves apart from those beliefs, the non-Christian versus the authentic Christian. And we'll go more into its execution when time allows, or perhaps that your questions enable us to in the coming weeks. So starting with... Real quick, uh, in case those of you guys don't speak Latin, uh, (laughs) let me just identify those words that Sean just said. So last week and the weeks before, we were talking about sola scriptura, which means only scripture. And remember, these are, as Sean said, the battle cries of the Reformation. So these were what were Martin Luther and people like him, they were saying in opposition to the Catholic Church. Now, they agree, right? We agree predominantly with the Roman Catholic Church on the existence of God and the nature of God. But if you notice, the last four all kind of mold together, because they all have to do with salvation, in which the Reformers believed that there was a fundamental distinction between what they saw in Scripture and what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching. So, sola Christos means it is only God's, it's only Christ's work on the cross that can save man. Nothing else can. There is no other system, religious propriety that could be instituted that would ever bring us into right conduct with God. The next one, sola fide, how do we access the righteousness that Christ purchased for us on the cross? Well, it is only by faith. You cannot do it any other way. You cannot uh, perform certain sacraments or rituals in order to access that grace that God has for us. It's just given to us freely by faith. And then sola gratia means that it is God's grace alone that not only provides the foundation of salvation for the Christian, but also the means of sanctification for the Christian, right? Grace sees us all the way from the beginning to the end in being in the presence of God, and sola de los gloria means it's only for God's glory, because it's God's work from beginning to end, only he receives glory, and that's what Paul means when he says, so that no one should boast. Man has nothing to brag about in the presence of God when it comes to his salvation, because it is only God's work that puts us in right relationship with him. So uh, the next couple of weeks, we'll be talking about those four, and we'll kind of be mixing them up because they're, uh, they all kind of build on one another, and they all say essentially the same thing. But yeah, let's uh, get into it. Yeah, of course, dealing with the dictionary as you uh, provide the lexicon, <laughs> the words in another language, fide, if you ever named your dog Fido or know a friend named Felix, it's basically building off of this term. Faith is not believing in something without evidence. Faith is not, as it's straw among atheist groups, just this blind belief in something that you can't prove. The literal dictionary definition of faith, as it's presented in our Bibles, is a translation from the Greek word pistis, which literally means trust, 
the kind of trust that's established with reason. Now note, you can have poorly informed faith or misplaced faith, but those reasons, good or bad, are the reason why you trust something that is the word pistis, or faith. Right, and in English, we have a word for believing something without reason, and that's assume. Right. right. So when you're assuming something, then you are putting your faith in something that you have no reason for. That's the distinction. So. Or haven't provided. So when we're talking about these issues, that's the first and most important thing to keep in mind as far as how others characterize you, as well as how you understand yourself. What are the reasons I trust God, that my hope is in Him? That's what we mean by faith. Is it because of a historically verifiable resurrection from the dead? Is it because it convinced my grandma, and that's good enough for me? Is it because, well, what else would I be doing on Sunday morning, or Wednesday night, or wherever you tend to meet at, for church services? Or is it because of the tangible work He's done in your life and the lives of others? Is it because of the validity of the Scriptures? Notice these are not equally valid options. I'm setting up disparity so that you guys are able to sift these through yourself. But the point being made is just that. If it's by faith that I'm saved, it's faith in what? Well, it's trusting with reason, the reasons he's provided in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that that is what saves me, trusting in that. It's basically following through on Jesus' statement that if anyone believes, this is John chapter 11, in me, even though he dies, he will live. Do you believe this? And that was essentially calling Martha, the first and initial audience, which I repeat myself, uh, of that statement to say, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So make that your point when people say, oh, well, you've proven yourself faithful in this matter. It's not because they just assume things about you. You've proven yourself trustworthy thus the synonyms there. So make sure that that's understood. But with that then hopefully defined dictionary style, let's branch out a bit into groups that would either expand beyond it or dismiss the idea entirely. There are groups that would claim to be Christians and others that certainly don't or do, depending on what day of the week you're asking them or the population percentage, but we'll get to that more in a minute, that would say, oh yeah, we're agreeing in the same God that you believe in. Obviously, we deal with the program a lot, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. They claim to be the sole source of spiritual truth. What would be their view on faith, from their own sources, of course? Uh, yeah, so uh, this is JW.org. They got a really nifty article on there called uh, What Must I Do to Be Saved? So, good place to start. And uh, another dictionary definition that we have to establish that uh, all of us actually agree with, Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, uh, Muslims, and various uh, Christian background people, uh, what salvation for us means is having a right relationship with God. So you have to be righteous, which is a uh, another old-fashioned word that just means justified. It's a legal sense. In a right relationship with someone, usually right. the law. Right, 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 exactly. So if I'm justified before the law, that means that they cannot bring any accusation against me, right? I am innocent when it comes to the law. So in order to be saved, to have a right relationship with God, I have to first be righteous. I have to, because God is a judge and you can't have a relationship with people that are guilty underneath his law. So you have to be forgiven for your sins and you have to be in a right relationship with God. That's what salvation is. What salvation will do is it will eventually allow me to be resurrected and to live with Christ 
for eternity in heaven, right? So on good terms, on good terms, right? So that's the definition that we understand as Christians. We have a right relationship with God. That relationship is predicated on what? So Jehovah's Witness, how do you get in this right relationship with God? Number one, you must believe that Jesus sacrificed his life for our sins. Number two, you have to learn what the Bible really teaches. Now, this is very important for Jehovah's Witness. Yeah. They have uh, a belief that's very similar to the Gnostics that existed during the time of Paul. Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. So in their view, salvation came a lot through learning. You had to actually become more and more philosophically trained, and through your intellectual acumen, you were becoming more and more unified with the way that things ought to be, and that virtue was what was saving you. Which we're not necessarily against. Christians don't get brownie points for being stupid, but right. if you think that my... Um, uh, grasping of deeper knowledge and secret spiritual truth that are only reserved for the elite, that's the Gnostic cult's foundation, then you're getting into, well, not the Bible. So. Right, exactly. And so from their perspective, you have to be doing Bible studies with the Bible Watchtower and Tract Society with in order... With their translations, with their commentaries, the right understanding of the exactly. Bible. Exactly. And you could be in that process for a long time, by the way, before they feel like you are ready for the next step, which is to repent. You have to repent or feel deep sorrow over previous wrong attitudes and conduct. Your repentance will be obvious to others as you stop practices that offend God and do works that befit repentance. Problem with this one is that it's kind of a, a very flexible word, right? Have you repented of all of your sins? I, I don't know. I couldn't even tell you if I've repented of all my sins because I don't. I don't know, right? You know, there's. I, I think I've repented of some, and that's a good thing. But that in that uh, blanket term, have you ever actually repented enough? You don't know. But eventually, the church will decide that you have repented enough and you've learned enough, and as then they, they define will, it. as they define it. And that will allow you for the next step to get baptized. We'll talk more about baptism probably next week or the week after. When we that talk means about something. right. That means something. How do we view baptism and things like that? Uh, but you have to get baptized in order to be saved in their ideology. Then you have to obey Jesus's instructions. Those who observe all the things that Jesus commanded show by their life course that they are his followers. They become doers of the word, not hearers only. So in other words, you have to be, and by the way, they define that in very specific ways. You have to be someone who proselytizes for the Jehovah's Witness faith. At least you mean, 40 hours a week minimum. That's right. And you have to do this uh, pretty, uh, like you said, a lot of hours a week. Uh, next is endure to the end. So even though you are saved, if you stop following Jesus's instructions correctly, you can lose your salvation very rapidly. So note, in all of these blanket terms, this is all under the article, how do I know that I'm saved? What right. must I do to get saved? This could have been one verse, one sentence, right. but they couple it in with the signs of spiritual growth and godly living, redefine some terms loosely enough so that mm -hmm. their organization can manipulate you, essentially, in yeah. certain ways. But building this all in, this is where even a lot of Christians find themselves digging themselves into a spiritual trap. Absolutely. If I'm not doing enough, or if I haven't done those things, how do I know, or how can I know that I am saved? Right. And thus, the building on a system that is, of course, not by faith alone. It's by works, it's by repentance, it's by immersion, that's what baptism means, right. spoiler alert, and of course, through the specific perseverance in the belief systems handed to you right. by their organization. And that's the importance of the words sola fide. All these systems that we're going to talk about today, they all believe in the importance of faith, 
but it is faith in yeah. concert with works that saves you. Uh, we believe something very interesting, and that is it is faith alone that gets you in that righteous relationship with God. Now, another interesting thing uh, to point out is in Ephesians 2, the passage you started out by quoting, Paul has a really cool metaphor to help us understand this, and that is that of a corpse. Right, so he says you were once dead in your trespasses. So our relationship with God was not just predicated on the fact that you know He's wooing us and we're just non-responsive. We're dead. We're corpses. That's what He's saying. Uh, and imagine, for instance, that you're in a hospital and you are dead. You're legally dead, meaning your heart's not beating. No and brain activity. At, right. And they're they're looking at you and they're like, should we resusc- resuscitate him yet? Because, you know, he has some cholesterol problems. Let's put him on a regiment of cholesterol medication and maybe let's do some liposuction and then maybe we'll get him on some other medications to help with these issues or that issues. No. Do what some do they weekend need? at Bernie's rehab right. <laughs> sessions and stuff to make sure all the bed rest isn't too much for their muscle <laughs> system. And, no. Unless you're alive, none of those things matter. Right. So in the Christian life, are these things important? Is it important to repent? Yes. Is it important to learn what the Bible teaches? Absolutely. Is it important to get baptized? Absolutely. Is it important? Unless it's by your organization. Right. Unless it's by your organization. Uh, Is it important to obey Jesus' instructions? Uh huh. Is it important to endure to the end? Uh huh. But none of those things save you. That is how you are sanctified, meaning it's how you grow in, as Paul puts in Philippians 2, it's how you work out the salvation that is in you, right? You're already saved, but you're manifesting that salvation on the surface through these behaviors, right? Over a lifetime, not, all right, day two, are you still saved? Yeah. That's not what we mean. That's, <laughs> that's not what right. the Bible so, means. So the mechanism of salvation, that's what we're saying. It's only faith. But let's let's move into Mormons. Yeah, of course, you gave credit where credit is due. With Jehovah's Witnesses, at least you don't have to I guess to find the English dictionary as strictly, because Mormons aren't from the same cloth. They'll use words, but not mean things, and this is something you have to constantly be aware of, because while they can sling the spiritual hash, to use breakfast terms, they don't actually have any potatoes in them, to keep up with the illustration. When they use words like salvation, they mean that your body will be preserved for judgment, and hopefully glorification through their system of making you into a god. When they say sins, they're not saying that it's a violation of your nature and God's. It's a violation of the eternal ordinances of the law, which don't just include moral compromises, but failing to get baptized, go through marriage rites, and wear your sacred underwear in their temples and in their... um, What's the term they use for their smaller meeting place? Stakes, thank you. Uh, When they uh, talk about atonement, they don't mean the same thing that it means. They they talk about the gospel. They're not talking about the good news that God has revealed himself to us. They're talking about the fact we can be God someday. Repentance, they don't mean the same thing. Baptism, they don't mean the same thing. The laying on of hands doesn't mean the same thing. Mm. So you have to watch this, because even though you're both sounding like you're speaking English, it's a whole other lexicon. So starting with these uh, issues along with faith. First of all, uh, what would be our source for this information? So we know we're not misrepresenting them. Yeah, so the first part of it is from their Articles of Faith. So this is like the basics of the Mormon faith. They have, I think, 14 Articles of Faith. Mm-hmm. And this, again, is just the ABCs of Mormonism, if you want to put it that way. And you can access these at churchofjesuschrist.com. Mm-hmm. I 
hate the fact they got that domain. But point being made is, this is the second article. We believe that men will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. So much for Romans 5. We believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved. Not what the Bible means, but continue on. By obedience to laws and ordinances of the gospel. Now, again, so much for the entire book of Romans, because Paul makes a careful distinction. The law isn't the gospel. We've been freed from one because of the other. But the point being made is, this is just the straightforward note, we'll also support from their primary text in a second, the fact that you are saved, that you are a part of and are continuing in, to use the JW term, the Mormon church because of your observances of laws and ordinances of what they call and define as the gospel. We believe, this is the fourth article, that the first principles and ordinance of the gospel, they define their terms, which is handy. First, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not the same Lord. Second, repentance, not the same thing. Third, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins not what baptism was applied as, and fourth, laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, I'm making all these caveats because, once again, you have to be aware of meaning. They'll use these words, but they don't mean the same things. And we would verify that because at face value, of course, one of the more significant articles after these is we affirm the Bible is our authority, insofar as it has been translated correctly. Now, what do they determine proper translation or interpretation in light of? Their further revelations, what they call their triple, Doctrines and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, and History of Joseph Smith, along with the Book of Mormon. But you can note these interchangeably. If you talk to any Mormon worth their I'll refrain from further mockery, but the point being made is you meet a Mormon, you're going to have them with one of these three things, if they intend to share with you in an informed way. In their scriptures, how do they define salvation and what sets the tone for these first four articles that we would apply as contrary to Christian faith? Right, so 2 Nephi 25, 23, it's good that you began with Ephesians 2, verses 9 through 10, because this is a clear refutation of that passage. So, uh, for we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. Right, so that's not what the Bible says. <laughs> now, of course, they'll maybe try to pull a non sequitur and say, well, doesn't James say that faith without works is dead? Well, I'd be happy to go through the context of the flow of his point, but the note of emphasis is this. Salvation is defined in Mormonism as through <clears throat> works. Right. Right. Uh, now, we could both take the, the Islamic one. Now, the Islamic yeah, one is, is, is weird. Uh, I'll just, uh, just flat out say that. What does it take to be saved in Islam? They don't know either. Uh, so we're going to do our best. Like, we're not strawmanning them. This is from their sources. If you talk to an imam today, they'll say, oh, it was really easy to be saved. And I'll give you kind of the main passages that they'll probably share with you. So this is from the book, uh, from the Quran, Surah 11, verse 14. And establish regular prayers at the end, at the two ends of the day and at the approaches of the night. For those things that are good, remove those that are evil. That is a reminder for the mindful. So how do you get saved in Islam based on this verse? Well, you do good things, and that removes the evil things that you've done, and eventually if you do enough good things, it will save you. Now, you mean the woman from Home Alone 2 was a Muslim? Yeah. <laughs> or Muslima, yeah. excuse me. 
But there are some other passages that throw a little bit interesting light on that, like... Surah 7, 178, I'll read to 179. Whomsoever Allah guides, he is the guided one, and whomsoever he sends astray, those, they are the losers. And surely we have created many of the jinns, genies, and mankind for hell. They have hearts wherewith they do not understand, they have eyes wherewith they see not, and they have ears wherewith they hear not. That is the truth. They are like cattle, nay, even more astray those, they are the heedless ones. So on top of totally misrepresenting Isaiah's point, people just don't want to listen because that's their problem, the author of the Quran makes this point that Allah just decides. Right who is going to be saved. It is like Calvinism on mega steroids. Yeah, one of these. uh, You got the five pillars of Islam, but you also have the six articles of faith, not in reference to Mormonism. One of those articles is the belief in predestination, and I mean, as you said, to a steroid-level degree. If Allah has decided that you are destined for hellfire, it doesn't matter how you lived your life, and we see this in the life of Muhammad himself. Uh, For example, um, once again, as far as Islamic belief is concerned, just like with Mormons, they would tack on revelations on top of the Bible and interpret it in light of the new information, Jehovah's Witnesses would just purposefully distort and rewrite the Bible in order to meet with their doctrine. But with Islam, it's, at least to their credit, gives lip service to the Bible, but when it ultimately comes down to it, they use the life of Muhammad as the standard for what godly living is. The Quran never actually mentions Muhammad by name, and the only four times that he's mentioned, it's an allusion parenthetically, and it's generally just with a nickname like the praised one. So when we're talking about Islamic teaching, all of it in light of the passion of the Quran that notes over and over and over again that Muhammad for you is a perfect example, and in him you know right conduct, in which you know that you are in uh, pleasing Allah. Right. Muhammad's life is the walking Quran. That was one of his nicknames. So how do we learn about Muhammad's life? We don't go to the Quran. The Quran's just a back-and-forth conversation between Allah and his messenger. We don't know if it was Muhammad. But the point being made is, when we ask what is Muhammad like then, so I can obey the Quran? You mentioned that if I pray, it releases, uh, uh, alleviates good or bad deeds in favor of good deeds, what they call bidah and barakah, good deeds and bad deeds, the shoulder angel thing, that's an Islamic stuff. Borrowed from pagans, but I digress. When we're talking about this issue, though, the erasure of those good de- or the good deeds in favor of the bad deeds and vice versa, it's all centered around what idea? that I have to do the prayers. Now, where do I read about the prayers? Where do I read about Muhammad? Where do I read about his life? It's not the Quran, it's called the Hadith, the sayings of Muhammad. You can compare it to our Bible in the red letters. What did Muhammad say? What did he do? How did he act? What did he like, dislike? That's proper living, even so far as what foot to step into the bathroom with first. You model Muhammad after, or your life after Muhammad. And again, in Sahil Bukhari, this is volume 5, book 58, number 266, there's an account of a woman from a particular tribe. I won't bore you with the details, but she gave a pledge of allegiance to the prophet that her tribe drew lots concerning the dwelling of the immigrants. Then a man named Uthman, it mentions his lineage, decided to dwell with them, and he fell ill, and she nursed him until he died. Then they covered him with his clothes. The prophet then came addressing his dead body and said, O Abu Sa'ib, may Allah's mercy be upon you. I bear witness that Allah has honored you. But then the prophet replied to the individual and said, How do you know that Allah has honored them? 
I replied to the woman, I don't know. May my father and my mother be sacrificed for you, O Allah's apostle. But who else is worthy of it if not Uthman? He said, this is the prophet, as to him, by Allah, death has overtaken him. And I hope the best for him. (laughs) By Allah, though I am the apostle of Allah, the standard of conduct for all Islam, yet I do not know what Allah will do to me. By Allah, I will never assert the piety of anyone after him. That made them sad, and then she had a dream of a river, and then uh, the prophet explained, oh, that's a symbol of his good deeds, so take that what you will. (laughs) But if the perfect man, this would be the equivalent of Jesus telling his disciples, hey, I don't know if I'm going to heaven or not. And if the perfect man, or at least the perfect enough man, according to Islamic standards, who is the standard of conduct in how you get to heaven, how you accumulate your barakah and limit your bida, is all centered around a man who himself didn't know if he was saved. It's pretty hardcore. <laughs> and you'd imagine yeah. he prayed every day. Right. The and amount of times that are not disclosed in the Quran, by the way, but right. apparently were set down in his conduct right. through a wrinkle in time, bizarre fever dream. But again, ask about that if you want. And that's the idea of the predestination of a law. So it doesn't matter how righteous of a person you are in this economy. If a law hasn't elected you, you ain't making it. Right? There and his no. terms are completely arbitrary. Right. There's another hadith where it mentions someone being thrown into hell because she forgot to feed her cat. And right. another who, man who went to heaven despite murdering a hundred people because he was on his way to see if he could find a way to be forgiven. And Allah shrunk the distance of the earth in order to make him slightly closer and yep. considered that worthy of redeeming the murder of a hundred, actually 101 people, because he asked a priest about it first, murdered him when he told him no. So 101 (laughs) people. Yeah. And by the way, if you want to read that on your own time, it's Sahih Muslim 2756B and 2619B. Uh, And that's the story that Sean was alluding to, where someone goes sent to hell because they forgot to feed a cat. And this is how that hadith ends. Zuri said, these two ahadith show that a person should neither feel confident of getting into paradise because of his deeds, nor should he lose all hope of getting into paradise. In other words, you just don't know, man. (laughs) You could be doing all the right things or all the wrong things, and Allah could just arbitrarily be like, you know what? I just kind of like you, man. Come on in. You're a mass murderer. That's okay. Come on in. Or you could be an amazing person. He's like, I just don't like you. And you didn't feed your cat. So you're going to go to hell. And this trend continues because we also read in the Hadith that one of Muhammad's successors, one of the main rightly guided caliphs, Uthman, said that if I had one foot in paradise, I would still fear Allah's deception because one of his names is Al-Makr, the God who deceives, the greatest of deceivers. And we know who that is in our belief, but the point being made is just that. When you're talking to a Muslim, you're talking to someone who's founder has no assurance of his salvation, who can do good deeds, hopefully to outweigh his bad deeds, determined by the most morally reprehensible person in history, no hesitation on that. But when this model is set up forth for them, even if they overlook all of the information about him, they still don't know, because he didn't know. But there is one surefire way to make it. What is that? Well, according to Muhammad, whose word is worth as much as you'd grant to it, those who die in the cause of Allah, these are granted paradise. And this was first spoken in historical context at the Battle of Badr. The Battle of Badr, for those of you who don't know, was the first actual military engagement Islam ever experienced, where after seven raids against Meccans who were literally just trying to live at peace with Muhammad, they tried to live at peace with him in Mecca, You 
You can read this in History of Altabri, Volume 6. He kept deriding their gods, vandalizing their places of worship, and literally calling the breeding for their deaths. So they kicked him out instead of killing him. He went to Medina. It was called Yathrib at the time, Medina today. And there he started gathering up an army where the Quran suddenly changed, promising war booty to anyone who would fight for him. And this then was the motivation. You're attacking these caravans and we're not responding. We're being terrorized, hint, by these people that we want to live at peace with, and they refuse to because of the claims of their prophet and apparently the God he speaks for. And finally, they sent an armed detachment to defend the caravan after seven tries to just let them alone. So Muhammad said, hey, you go into battle against that armed caravan, that's your assurance of heaven, dying in struggle, jihad, against non-believers. Now, Jihad just means struggle, but the first time that it's used in context of an assurance of salvation, it's in martyring yourself or murdering those who would stand against the whims of Allah's messenger. This is why you need to be aware of that fact and the difference between a Muslim and Islam, because most Muslims, A, don't know how to spell Badr, let alone its significance historically. Second, they don't know the claims of their prophet. You note those hadith number in several thousands. There is about 7,000, I think, total, 4,000 of which are just repeats, most of which are handed to them by their spiritual leaders. The point being made is this. The Muslim that you run into on the street don't assume that they're a terrorist, but their founder, the foundations of Islam, provided one and only one assurance of salvation without contradiction, and it was those who die as martyrs fighting the unbelievers. And it doubles down on this by mentioning that if Allah sees someone come to him in paradise without marks from fighting the unbelievers, they will find in you deficiency. Mm. So be aware of these things and note, it is not because we are killing and and being killed for our faith that we earn our salvation. Mm. It is not because of our willful manipulation by at the hands of an organization that has literally discredited itself 26 times since its founding and on it goes we're not putting ourselves in the hands of a 18th century paint huffer that literally just claimed one day oh i heard from god no one believed him until he started paying them and then on it goes when we're talking about these things be aware there are reasons we have to trust somebody and the reasons provided not only have consequences but should be examined thoughtfully because it leads to this kinds of disasters yeah so next week we can get into more of the biblical evidence for sola fide and kind of how the different apostles approach this topic but let me just end this this particular statement of you know after listening to the thing about muhammad and talk to people who are mormons and who are jehovah's witness about their assurance of salvation and how much fear they have about whether or not they're actually going to make it to heaven because the question always comes back how good is good enough how much have I achieved, and is it actually enough to make it into heaven? Well, the first the ap- question has an answer. Right. So the Apostle Paul, when he was talking about his existence in Judaism, when he was trying to earn his salvation before God versus now that he is saved by grace through faith, listen to how he responds to this. This is Philippians 3, verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, this is a key verse, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So if you're someone who has come from a cult-like background or if you've struggled with this question, am I saved? I don't know. If you want to get off the hamster wheel, if you want to have that kind of peace and assurance that the Apostle Paul is talking about, where does your salvation come from? Have you found that peace and that blessedness of knowing that you don't have your own righteousness that you're standing before God with, but you have the righteousness which is by faith, which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God, right? That kind of righteousness, is that good enough? Absolutely, it's good enough, right? If it's righteousness that is directly from the Son of God, that is good enough to make it into heaven. And if you have access to that by faith alone, we have much assurance and much peace within our relationship with God. So uh, I hope that helps. It gives you a good primer for that, and we'll get more into it next week. All right. Uh, question from Yari, who wants to know, why didn't the gift of tongues exist in the Old Testament? Uh, there's people in the Pentecostal realm who emphasize this as salvation, but as far as he knows, the Bible is silent. You want to avoid these kinds of issues that are clearly spelled out in the New Testament and saying, well, do you have an example of that in the Old? And I'm not saying there's a disparity between the revelations, but as God's Spirit was manifested in certain times and in certain places, you have to ask for what purpose. Now, there were examples in the Old Testament of tongues, because the same Spirit that was working then is the one that's working now. We don't think that God has new abilities. But if, on the other hand, we ask what was tongue's purpose to verify salvation. Well, that wasn't, of course, by faith through Jesus Christ, since he hadn't incarnated yet. You have to ask, what is it explained as in the New? That's 1 Corinthians 14 through and through. Salvation's never mentioned. In the book of Acts, it usually accompanies, but that's because this was kind of a new thing. And like we read in the Old Testament, any manifestation of miracles was done to verify God's words. You don't just limit it to tongues, you'd say it to anything. And when we talk about the entirety of the nation of Israel at the end of Exodus prophesying, and people saying, should we restrain them? He said, hey, all the more. I hope that I wish that the Spirit of God was moving through them like this always, the paraphrased version, but notice Moses' observation. Filling to the Spirit manifested through prophecy. Filling to the Spirit manifested through healings. Filling to the Holy Spirit manifested through calling down fire on people who are literally going to try to kill you. On and on it goes. The Spirit of God fell on people, and they spoke in tongues. What was this all meant to do? To verify to the eyewitnesses the Spirit of God had moved in a visible way and an invisible way, to verify one with the other. Yara, you may remember when we answered the question about the whole, why did God heal the paralyzed man after saying your sins are forgiven? Because one would verify the other. It's the same principle. So when you're talking to someone who would overemphasize tongues, you have to make it, take it with the same approach as someone who would overemphasize prophecy or overemphasize healing, overemphasize anything, and just bring them back to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. You don't have to get recourse to the Old Testament and say, well, tongues wasn't manifested then. It didn't have to be. The Spirit acted then as he saw fit, just as 1 Corinthians 12 says, today he acts as he sees fit. These gifts are for that purpose. And since tongues, the pouring out to all nations, is being fulfilled as Isaiah prophesied, that helps. So note that point and purpose. It's not a matter of getting debate points or calling for total consistency. 
the consistent point is the Spirit does what He wants, how He wants, but for the same reason. We see that in the old and the new. But then as a follow-up, um, what should this be, especially with the more Pentecostal bent, be something we debate about as Christians? What are the sort of things we should debate about, and as spiritual gifts are spiritual gifts one of them? Yeah, so there, there's different reasons for debates within Christendom. So there are some debates that we would call uh, debates about heretical statements, so things that we actually feel as though would contradict the gospel of Jesus Christ or lead someone to believe in a version of God that is not biblically supported, right? For those, the obvious reason to debate it is because that person's soul is on the line. But when it comes to in-house debates, right, what is the usage of gifts within the body of Christ and things like that, I think we should be willing to have those debates. Number one, for clarity's sake, sometimes we don't really know what we actually believe about particular topics until we start talking about it. And then we're like, oh, wow, like this is a differing opinion than what I'm used to. Maybe there's something to what they're saying, or maybe there isn't. And it forces you to really study and understand why you believe what you believe. But the second and probably more the important reason it's just because these things don't have anything to say about our salvation. It doesn't mean that they don't have something to say with how we relate to God and how we relate to others. So something can be damaging without it being something that's deadly. So uh, a physical example of this, right? So if someone is eating large amounts of calories or carbohydrates or something like that, will that kill them? Uh, well, it depends on how many they're eating, right? If they're just if they just are eating a slightly unhealthy amount and not to the extent where they're going to you know balloon up to six hundred pounds and die. Well, you know, in that case, why would I talk to that person about these particular things? Well, because even though it's not deadly, it is still something that might damage them. So in the same way, the misuse of spiritual gifts or the anticipation of the gift of tongues when it's not clearly delineated in Scripture can hinder someone's spiritual growth, right? So if someone believes that if I'm uh, if I have the Holy Spirit, the way that I confirm that is through the pouring out of the gift of tongues, and someone doesn't receive that pouring out, they can seriously question their salvation, even though they shouldn't. Um, or you could also have church services that are really disordered, because you have a lot of people speaking in tongues and not enough people speaking in the, your native tongue, so you have no idea what's going on around you, right? So, so many people speaking at once, right? one or two at the most. That's right. So um, while those things won't destroy your salvation, they are damaging as a whole. And so yeah, it is important to talk about these things. But again, they're in-house debates, and we should treat them as such. Yep. Um, question from Isaiah, who wants to know if people who know each other both end up going to hell. Um, this is posted by the elder. Will people with grudges against each other, like David's sons Absalom and Ammon, continue their feud in eternity? There is no evidence that those who end up separated from God will have any relationships, even negative ones, there. Let us know if that helps you out, Isaiah. A uh, question from S.A. who wants to know, is there any biblical explanation why our individual besetting sin waxes and wanes? Uh, rephrase it a little bit. Why is it that we tend to struggle with certain sins at certain times in our lives more than others, if we're already saved? If we've mm -hmm. seen victory from them, why is it they tend to come back? Uh, yeah, there are many factors as to why temptations wax and wane within our lives. You know, there's even things like our mental state. So uh, if, if you're in AA recovery circles, they have the acronym HALT, 
hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, right? So if any of those things are going on in your life, then you are more prone to struggling with various temptations and things like that. But if you're if you're happy and things are going well and you're well-rested and your body's healthy and things like that, uh, you're, you're less likely to struggle with varying temptations and to lesser degrees. So there are so many different factors that go into it, both biological as well as spiritual, as well as just maybe God is kind of putting you in a wilderness time, right? So Jesus, for instance... Hold on to him, yeah. That's right. Jesus, for instance, he wasn't doing anything wrong. He was just put into... He was led by the Spirit. This was literally what the text says, into the wilderness and experiences great temptation there. So sometimes God will allow increased temptation in your life to increase your endurance, right? So this is what we see from the book of James and places like that. So... If you to minister to someone else who struggles the same way. Absolutely. So unfortunately, there's no one reason as to why they wax and wane. They just... They're are many factors and honestly i haven't really found it super useful to figure out why particular temptations are increasing or decreasing in my life because my marching orders remain the same and that is to fight and resist them at all costs now the only reason why i might focus on a biological cause is because if there's something simple that i could get rid of and help with my temptations I should probably do it. So in other words, if my diet is terrible and because my diet is terrible, I have low energy and I feel cranky all the time and things like that, perhaps I should change my diet. I mean, that would be a really easy solution to helping out the temptation, right? As Paul puts it, do everything to stand against the evil day. So if there's something practical that you can do to help you stand against the evil day, that's great. Will it take away the temptations? Nope, but it can be helpful. So yeah. And again, like you mentioned, Peter, sometimes we could just be neglecting our pursuit of God, and that distance or that coldness can give room for us or set us up for a lack of ability to fight effectively later on. You mentioned circumstances in life can change, and some things are going to impact you more than others. Certain areas of sin will be associated with certain forms of trials that may, in fact, come up. So again, not to set you up for failure, but to enable you for success. The solution's always the same. So whether you're struggling a lot or a little in old sins or new sins, answer's always the same. Make sure that's the focus, not the frequency of the obstacle thereof. Hmm. Uh, question by email from Stephen, who was reading Judges 11 this morning, and the story of Jephthah's daughter had them confused. They came to our article. We addressed this as the question of the week some time back. And it does not really clear it up. Am I missing something here? I'll bring up the article along with you. Here is Judges 11:31. It says, Then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, that's the people he was going to deliver Israel from, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up, here's the emphasis, as a burnt offering. Here is Judges 11:39. And it was so that at the end of two months that she returned to her father, and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man. Here's my confusion. In verse 31, it clearly says he vowed to offer up his daughter as a burnt offering. And in verse 39, he carried out his vow. Your article states, there is no mention of her being thrown on a pyre or even dying, seeming to suggest, seeming, he didn't offer her as a burnt offering. It seems to me that the scripture is pretty clear on what happened, and I'm trying to square how this fits into the entirety of the Bible. Is there any other insight you can offer? Thank you. Well, thank you for the question, Stephen. Yeah, you did miss something. Let me read the last paragraph of the article. This is the only thing, this is referencing Judges 11:39, that we're told at the end of the matter. She never had a child. She knew no man. 
That was the form the sacrifice took. Those who would argue that this involved more than abstinence and a commitment to singleness need to focus entirely, as we saw in the question, on Judges 11.31. In any context, it is inappropriate to form conclusions on how something happened before you finish reading what happened. Because the account itself says nothing more, we shouldn't read into the matter anything more than what we're told. Those that argue that this was an example of human sacrifice do have their reasons, but not in a way that would set a godly example for anyone going forward due to the setting and the latter mentions of the passage itself. Now, these are the two verses, that's the last sentence of the article, but the two verses that I was alluding to in that conclusive statement. The first is later mentions of the passage. This is Hebrews 11 and verse 32. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. This is a list of positive people who, through faith, subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Here's where Jephthah comes in. Out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, and turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Now, I don't know your feelings about uh, commentaries or parentheses, but you can look all you want. You're not going to find in any commentary of Hebrews 11.32 and human sacrifice and Indian funerals. And I'm being facetious, but you get the point. And then going back once again to earlier passages, I would also recommend checking out Genesis chapter 22, where in an instance where God commanded Abraham to offer up his son Isaac, your only son whom you love, on the mountain that I will show you, we remember the whole account where God says, do not lay your hand on the child, for I know that you trust me. Now here's the point. That's used as a foundation in Jewish culture, Jephthah's culture, as a prohibition against any human sacrifice, which is further reiterated in the Old Testament, specifically the books of Moses. Very authoritative, not just Genesis, but also in Leviticus. You're not to offer your children on the fires of the pagan altars. So here's the point. Oh, and if you're going to mince words with that and say, oh, it doesn't say... God's altar. This is pagan altars. Shut up. The point being made is this. When we're talking about the issue of Jephthah's daughter, here's the whole situation. In Judges 11, he made a rash vow. He says, anything that comes out of that door, the first thing that comes out of that door, I'll offer it as a burnt offering to the Lord. You cited it. I cited it. We're on even ground. He made that vow. Then his daughter comes out, <laughs> celebrating her dad's victory in battle, delivered to him by the Lord. That's what he was commended for in later verses in the Bible. He grieves because of the fact that now he has to offer up his daughter, according to the vow, as a burnt offering. Since he comes from a culture that forbids human sacrifice carte blanche, what are the two options? That A, he burned her alive as an offering to the Lord, which wouldn't have been accepted, by the way, according to the Old Testament. But also note, he could have offered exactly what is told to us in the text. She knew no man. Period. Also note, in the passages that were explained in the article, it says what? Allow me to go for a few days and be male to mourn my virginity. She never mentions her life. She mentions the fact that she's not going to go through a process that will allow her to have children. Peter, was that an uh, important thing in Jewish culture, something that would be considered a loss for someone not just like Jephthah, but anybody? It would be a grievous loss. So, future generations being cut off, that's important. Mm. Um, um, 
feel free to note a comment here. But yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I think what you're saying, which is very important, is that you know it, we're not really certain if you just read the text that that's exactly what happened. That he did actually fulfill his vow to the letter and offer up her up as a burnt offering. But regardless, what you could say is that it was a rash vow. Right? No matter what he did with his daughter it was wrong and never commended in the Bible, right? So there's no way that God's going to commend a father enforcing perpetual virginity on his daughter for no other reason than he just made a rash vow, and there's no way it's going to condemn a much worse behavior, which would be to actually sacrifice her on the pyre. So no matter what he actually did with his daughter, Jephthah's in the wrong, and this is something that we as Christians can get mistaken in the Bible, then we see these kind of heroes of the faith, we assume that the Bible is recommending everything that they do as the exact opposite of the Bible's point. The opposite of the Bible's, what the Bible's main point is, is that God works through imperfect people, and these imperfect people make some pretty grievous errors, right? And we're not to replicate them. It's not good that Abraham lied about being married to Sarah. It's not good that he had sex with Hagar. It's not good that David was a polygamist. It's not good that Solomon was a mega polygamist. It's not good that Gideon had a ephod that he worshipped and had, again, was a polygamist, right? So And a horrible father. And a, a pretty crappy father. So you have these people in the faith, and, and in Hebrews 11, what you're seeing is what good things did they accomplish in their faith towards God, and they highlight them. They did these good things, and we need to look at these people, even a guy like Samson, say, he did some good things. He did a lot of bad things, but he did some good things, and we should commend him for it. However, we should also equally condemn the evil things that they did, and Jephthah's in that category. So uh, either he did a mildly evil thing and prevented his daughter from being able to be married, which, like, like we've talked about in that culture, was really bad, really a damaging thing to do to your daughter, especially and, in the context, seems like she's a very young girl when he's doing this to her. And is verified within the text as what happened. She knew no man. Right. Or he actually sacrificed her and did an incredibly large evil. But regardless, God wasn't happy with his behavior one way or the other. That God never asked him to make a vow. God never said, like, hey, I'll deliver you to Ammon, but you got to promise me that whatever comes out of your house first, uh, that that's what you're going to give me. God never said that. He just made a rash vow, and that's why you have a passage like in Ecclesiastes 5 where Solomon says, uh, don't be rash with your words when you make vows. God is in heaven and you are on your earth. <laughs> you know, like be, be careful. with Let your words be few, right? So Jephthah, would it have been a good thing for him to say, like, hey, whatever animal comes out of my house, I'll sacrifice to God. Yeah, whatever. Uh, but, you know, for him to make a really rash vow like that is very foolish. We're not supposed to commend him for this. This is at a time in Israel's history where they have just completely lost their moral compass. And so, that's key, because yeah. even if we set up this time frame as, well, he was a godly example, let me read to you the last verse of the book of Judges. In the sum of the whole matter, Judges 21-25, in those days, what days? Including those of Jephthah. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, not the eyes of the Lord. So note, if we grant the point, which I mentioned in the article, it was not good. If we read the passage, which I mention in detail in the article, we can't conclude apart from a hyper-focus on verse 31 and say, burnt offering says fire means fire. Okay, back to first point, that was not good. Second point, in the passage doesn't mention fire. It mentions her virginity being mourned and that she knew no man. That's how it was executed according to the passage. Reading anything else would be reading into the text, not out of it. And of course you say, but verse 31 is there, so is verses 32 through 39.
especially 39. Read the end of the passage to know the end of the matter, not what happened as opposed to what I infer happened. That's important. So let us know if that helps you out. And note, uh, the individual that I said shut up to was not you, Stephen. It was the hypothetical person who was making the alteration and saying, but what about the altar of the Lord? That was my point. That being said, um, we'll be keeping an eye out for more questions as they come, but here's our contradiction for the day. Might uh, have a chance to address one more question, so feel free to get us in to one as quickly as you can, but this will hopefully be very straightforward. Um, when the incident about the demons and the gatherings, uh, where did the demons ask not to be sent? In Mark 5, 9 through 10, it says, out of the country. In Luke 8, 30 through 31, they asked not to be sent to the abyss. Now, we don't even have to look these passages up, but we'll do it anyway, because that's what you do. What, uh, do you want to do Mark, or do you want to do Luke? I'll do Mark. All right, I'll go to Luke chapter 8. When it comes to claims of contradictions in the Bible, there is a two-step process we recommend to all of you. The first is to know what a contradiction is. A contradiction is a violation of the second formal law of logic, the law of non-contradiction. A does not equal non-A. Two things in the same way and in the same sense can't both be true and at the same time cancel each other out. So if it was true that the abyss was in the country of the gatherings and Jesus was going to cast these demons out, but they asked, don't send us into the abyss, and the abyss was, you know, down the road or whatever, that would be a contradiction because the country and the abyss are one and the same. You can't say, oh, well, going to send us into the abyss, and they're going to send us out of the country? Well, those would be two different things, wouldn't they? Well, that's the problem. They're not. And you have to assume the abyss is not a part of the country. But let's actually read the passages. That's the first, second step. Call their bluff. Go to the passages. Uh, yeah, so Mark 5, verse 10. Uh, well, actually, yeah, let's start in verse 10. And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. He also, he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. So again, we're dealing with demon-possessed man, and Jesus, he knows that Jesus has the authority to cast him out. And he's saying, don't send me out of the country. And Luke 8.30 makes the same point. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go into the abyss. So, how would this be a contradiction? Well, not as the text puts it. Is the abyss in the country? Is it out of the country? Where's the abyss? Until you can establish that, then you can't claim this isn't a fundamental conflict with itself. When you encounter someone who claims the Bible contradicts itself, this is usually the caliber that you run into, and you don't have to be afraid of it. Just make sure that you're informed and confident enough to ask questions rather than give rash answers. Say, well, do you know what a contradiction is, and could you show me where and when? And if you're, they're willing to follow up on that, then hopefully they'll either A, learn something, and B, not change the topic immediately. Because nine out of, out of ten, that's what will happen. Make sure that you're talking to a sincere person, and we thank you all for being exactly that. We'll see you all again tomorrow on A Reason for Hope. Till then, this has been Sean Richards with Peter Martin. God bless you. See you tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.